Well, good morning. My name is Chris Rice. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Fellowship, and it's a privilege to bring God's Word to you today. If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah, chapter 7, and our message will be out of verses 1 through 7 today. For those of you who have not been here or are relatively new to our church or who are visiting, we are in a sermon series called Justice and Love. Uh, it is over uh, the prophet Micah. We started this about six to eight weeks ago, and we finish next week. Um, just a little background on Micah. It's essentially a prophecy that has three sections to it, and it's the justice and love. Justice, he will judge his enemies. Love, he will redeem his people. So you've got justice, love, justice, love, justice, love. Pretty straightforward, right? But what's interesting about our passage today is that that hinge between the justice portion and the love portion, there's something there that wasn't there before in the first two sections. And we're going to look at that really deeply today. And understanding the tension of where justice and love come together will help us understand how we hope in the midst of suffering. So I'll read the passage, and then we'll pray that the Lord would teach us. So Micah 7, 1 through 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. And here's that last verse. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we understand the tension of this verse. We understand that hope and suffering are two things that exist in the life of the believer, but there is redemption. There is rock-solid hope to be found in your word and how it points to where the tension of where love and justice meet, and that is Jesus. Father, let every word that comes from you stick. Let every word that comes from me fade away. Father, please lift up your son in this word. Amen. So Micah is grieving over Israel's rebellion. It says in verse 1, woe is me. Now when he says, woe is me, okay, this isn't frustration that you went to Chick-fil-A for the 10th time after church and realized that it's closed, and now you've got a plan because everything's wrong. That's not, that's not woe is me, okay? It's not when your favorite team... It's undefeated and losing the championship game. Yes, talking to UK fans a couple years ago. Look, it may have been frustrating for about five minutes before you forgot about it, but then you went on with your life. That's not what he's talking about here. Micah is in anguish. His people are failing. It seems like the promises of God are going asunder, and he is suffering for it. But we see in this last verse 
that he is also filled with hope. So with a passage that focuses on hope in the midst of suffering, a lot of you will not have to look far to find an application for this passage. For some of you, suffering has been the last couple weeks, months, years, your whole life. Some of you have dealt with suffering in ways I can't even begin to imagine. So what does, what does his word have to teach us today about that? What do we do when suffering comes? Zooming in on this last verse of our passage today can help us by asking these three questions. Who was Micah looking to? Who was Micah calling to? Who was Micah waiting for? And the answer to that first question brings us to our first point. Look to God, your Savior still reigns. Back to verse 7. It starts with, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. It seems that Micah is separating himself from the rest of the Israelites. We've seen throughout this series that all of Israel, it seems, has just gone away. They have abandoned God, and Micah seems to be the only one left. But he says, but as for me. What is different from Micah from the rest of them is not what he's looking to or who he's looking to. And he's looking to Jesus when everybody, or sorry, looking to God when everybody else is looking elsewhere. The word look can also be translated be on the watch. It seems to bring to mind a watchman as larger cities in Israel would have watchtowers that would be overlooking the city to see if any invaders are coming. But Micah's situation is reversed. Instead of looking outward to protect the enemy from an innocent Israel, Israel is evil. They are guilty. And they have welcomed the sin and idolatry of the world into their city. They have been taken over. But Micah remains up on the watchtower, and he still looks to the Lord and does not give in. He knows that when it feels like God's promises are failing, God is still on his throne. And it's here where we see that Micah addresses the Lord as Yahweh. Okay, if you see that word Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that means Yahweh. Okay, that's a way of showing that he's talking about God's self-ascribed name to himself. Okay, it was first talked about in Exodus chapter 3, where he talks to Moses in the burning bush. It means he will be, or I am, in the first person. So God calls himself, some of you may have heard it before, the great I am. Okay, it points to his eternity. It points to his self-reliance, his self-existence, his sovereignty, amongst other images that would have brought Micah hope in the midst of suffering. Just before Micah, another prophet by the name of Isaiah wrote these words on behalf of God. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, Yahweh, the first and the last, I am he. Micah doesn't ground his confidence in circumstances, but in who God is. He is the great I am. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. Micah's use of God's divine name brings back to memory Deuteronomy 8. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh, that comes from the mouth of the Lord, that comes from the mouth of the great I am. When he's invoking this word, he wants you to have confidence in his very name that the person you're talking to is no mere God amongst other gods. He is the God. He is the eternal God. He is everything. And he, has, he is more than capable of dealing with whatever you're going through. Michael was confident, even in his grief, 
that God was still on his throne, that God still reigned, that he was in control. So Christian, how does this apply to you today? Well, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus says to Abraham, or sorry, Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced that one day Jesus would come, that the Christ would come. He says he rejoiced that he would see my day and was glad. And the Pharisees were like, bro, that's Jewish, bro, okay? You're not even 50 years old. Have you not, do you even know Abraham? Have you seen Abraham? They're saying this is ridiculous. I don't see this anywhere. Now, how can you say that Abraham said this? He says, before Abraham was, I am. The God who reigns, who is sovereign over your circumstances, has come in the flesh. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the great I am. He is the one that you look to in your grief and suffering. Jesus is described in Ephesians 1 as far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about how powerful that is. Every leaf that will fall here in a couple months, the world spinning on its axis, you know, all the nations moving and doing what they're doing, it is all upheld by the word of his power. That is the God that you have been saved by. That is the God that you trust in. Surely he is powerful enough to be with you in the midst of your suffering and to know that you're banking your promises on someone who is able to come through. Jesus is in complete control. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that your pain or suffering goes away. We know from the rest of the Old Testament story that Israel does not repent. Micah would suffer for the rest of his life, but the length or severity of his suffering did not turn his gaze, his confidence from the great I am. And so it is for you, follower of Jesus. He reigns over your circumstances, the seasons of darkness, the loss in your life that seems too hard to bear. He is with you, and he will have the final word because the God of the universe has said so. Because he has all authority, the promises to you of what is to come and how he loves you are true because no one can overthrow him. His word is final. Let's flesh out some examples of looking to Christ in the midst of suffering. I can think of many in this room. Here's just a couple. What if you're widowed, single, or same-sex attracted, and everyone in a similar season around you abandons God and finds that fulfillment in relationships that rebel against God? The promises of God lead you to say, but as for me, I will look to Jesus, my eternal husband, who loves me more than any human relationship ever could. What if you're in a long, dark season of doubt? Your faith hangs by a thread, and the culture around you says your feelings are justified and to just be your own God and go your own way. The great I am leads you to say, but as for me, I will look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, who has paid for all my wandering. Though I may be a bruised reed, his love will care for me. Though my faith may feel like the last ember in a dying fire, he will keep me lit. What if you've lost a child? What if your child is rebellious? What if you can't have children? And the world tells you, how can a good God let you suffer like that? Confidence that the promises to come are secure in the hands of Jesus lead you to say, but as for me, Jesus is my inheritance. He is my greatest joy. He gives me an inheritance that's better than sons and daughters. And he loves me and he will redeem everything. What, what if you're a missionary in Central Asia and you have labored for years 
There is persecution all around you. The church you have started or shepherd is fractured and people leave, telling you to go home as they walk out the door. Your battle cry to them is, but as for me, I will look to Jesus, in whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is with me. He will grow my ministry according to his sovereign will, and even if it leads to my death, even if I never see a lick of fruit from my time here, I am part of his story to bring all people to himself. Victory is already his, because he has said so. We never ground our confidence on our circumstances. We ground our confidence in the one who holds it all together. When we are suffering, this is what God wants us to do with our eyes. He wants us to look to him, fix our eyes on him. Our eyes are meant to only gaze at him because it is only in Jesus that we can know that the Lord is in complete control and that his promises will not fail. But is that what, merely what he wants us to do? Does he want us to just stare at him and shut up? Say, just look at me, deal with it. No. Jesus doesn't want us to just deal with it and just look to him. He doesn't say, stop complaining already. No, he wants to hear from you as you look to him for deliverance. Which leads to the second point. Call to God, your Savior hears you. Call to God, your Savior hears you. Verse 7 ends with, I, my God will hear me. I want to focus on the my God and the hear of this phrase. Why didn't he use the name Yahweh like he did before? Pretty strong name. Points to his eternity. It's a pretty strong thing, right? But instead, he uses, my God will hear me. What can we learn from that? What can we learn from Micah using, my God will hear me, instead of Yahweh will hear me? What is being emphasized is that the believer in God isn't just way above you, out of your reach, with no attachment to you. He's saying, I've saved you, deal with it. I'm out. That's not, that's not the God we serve. Because he is your God. Micah says he is my God. There is ownership there. What he is saying is that those whom God saves are his very family. Micah knew back in the Exodus story what God said to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let them go that they may serve me. God would say to Israel after crossing the Red Sea in Exodus 19, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Hear what God is saying there. I gave birth to you, Israel. Like, you are mine. You are my firstborn. So Israel is the object of God's affection because he rescued them. He created them. They are his people. He is their God. Micah's reference to my God can give us confidence to endure in the midst of suffering. Because God isn't only in control, but that God loves those who are under his sovereign care. What does this mean to you, follower of Jesus? Satan wants to use your wandering, the persecution that you face, the trials that you experience to try and convince you that God does not love you. That's the prosperity gospel in the other direction. Prosperity gospel says, if you pray to God, love God, give God, he'll give you all these things. But the prosperity gospel works the other way. If you don't have those things, God really must not love you. That is a lie. That is not the gospel. That is not the Lord who has saved you. We look at Ephesians 6. And we say we guard ourselves when Satan sends these flaming darts of persecution or when doubts arise in our hearts of God's goodness, control, or even existence when suffering comes. What does it say in Ephesians 6? The armor of God. 
we take up the shield of faith. We take these thoughts captive with the promises of the gospel. In Christ, you are the apple of your heavenly Father's eye. You are, as it says in Romans 8, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. That's not just an image of that he loves you, but that you have his full inheritance. There is no second right for you. You know, your suffering and your trials and whatever you've been through have not disinherited you from what is coming. There is nothing but endless joy for you because he loves you. If you believe in the person and work of Christ today, God loves you. Remembering the gospel, preaching the good news to yourself that Jesus has taken your sin and given you his righteousness through faith in him gives you confidence in knowing your sin nor your circumstances have not disqualified you. So your Heavenly Father wants to bring your burdens to him. This is where the here in this passage comes from. The word carries two meanings. He says, my God will hear me. First, and quite obvious, he hears, because Micah's calling to him. God wants you to bring all your grief and all your guilt to him. Let God's word destroy the doubts that you have about God not wanting to hear from you. Listen to 1 Peter 3, verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Pause. That's you, suffering sinner. Saved by grace through faith in Jesus, you are the righteous. And then he ends it. And his ears are open to their prayer. There is nothing that inconveniences your heavenly Father. There is no, ugh, again, really? Is this, you're really bringing this to me again. I thought we were past this already. Just deal with it. You know I'm sovereign. It's not what he says. He is tender to us. He is a loving father to us. Whatever happened last week or 10 years ago, whether it's the first or the thousandth time you've grieved over the same thing, he is always ready for you to bring your pain to him. Do not hold back because you think you've capped out the limit of his grace towards you over a struggle that just keeps wanting to creep up. Call to him. In Christ, your heavenly Father hears you. And it doesn't stop there. Because the other emphasis of the word here in this passage is that God is working. Micah isn't merely saying, God will audibly pick up the sounds that are coming out of my mouth. Okay? It means that he will work through it. This expression means that God will answer him. Psalm 18.6 can help us understand this. In my distress, I called upon the Lord that word Yahweh like we talked about, to my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. It goes on to say in this psalm how the Lord hearing him means that the Lord is rescuing him. This kind of hearing isn't passive, it's responsive. For Micah, God heard the cries of Israel because he brought them from Egypt. Micah knows as God saved them from slavery, uh, from slavery in Egypt because he heard their prayers. And Micah knew that God would save again because God keeps his word and he hears Micah's prayers now. That's what he says is God hears him. His God will answer him. And on this side of the cross, believer, we know that Christ, or sorry, through Christ, God is working when we bring our pain and sin to him. 1 John 1, 9 says, when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and is cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Hear that, believer in the room. Be encouraged by this. Your repentance is being used by God to shape you to hate the things that he hates, 
to love the things that he loves, to be captured by him. As I heard one pastor say, where sin isn't serious, Jesus isn't precious. Be encouraged that with every sweet reminder of forgiveness to you and your sin canceled on the cross of Christ, God is shaping you for his glory and for your joy. What about the trials that come from living in a fallen world? Paul says in Romans 5 that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul isn't saying that we rejoice because we have suffering. The suffering in and of itself is bad. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we rejoice while we suffer. Hint, they go together. It's what it means to live in a fallen world as a believer. But we worship, we rejoice, not at the suffering, but that God will work through the suffering. His goodness through your suffering can come in many forms. It can come to a greater reliance on his word. It can come to a greater treasuring of Christ and the inheritance that awaits you. It can result in a greater capacity to be used by God to love and shepherd others with the love of Christ. Your suffering is not pointless. God is working in and through you if you're a follower of Jesus. Nothing is pointless in your life. He can use all of it because your God is just that, your God. He has bought you with the blood of Christ. He delights to hear your cries and know this. He is always working for you. He never stops. So what do suffering saints do with all this information? How do followers of Jesus respond in the midst of their suffering, when they know that Christ is still on his throne, and when they know that in Christ they are heard by their heavenly Father, what do we do? The third and final point from verse 7 in the middle of the passage helps provide that answer. Our third point is wait for God. Your Savior is coming. The middle of verse 7 says, I will wait for the God of my salvation. Micah isn't looking out from his watchtower of his city in ruins with anger towards God, but with confident hope. Micah's confidence that God still reigns doesn't lead to doubting his goodness in allowing this to happen. Micah doesn't use his confidence that God hears him to accuse the Lord or demand his desires right now. No, he simply says, I will wait for you. That's not to say that Micah wasn't eager for God's promises to come or that the suffering that he was going through wasn't severe. This is communicating that his patience in the Lord's timing and goodness did not have an expiration date or a list of conditions. What is stronger than Micah's desires, which are good desires, or his trials, as terrible as they may be, is his confidence that the person he is waiting for is the God of my salvation. This phrase carries with it two meanings. On the one hand, God saved his people from Egypt. This is an actual event that happened in history. He rescued them from slavery. Uh, excuse me, slavery. He claimed them as his own. And on those grounds, God is the Micah, or sorry, God is to Micah the God of my salvation. But it also carries another sense. It's not just a declaration of what God has done, but it's also a declaration of who God is. He is not just the God who saved back then and has now left Micah to fend for himself. He is the God who will save in the future. 
Micah is grounding his confidence in what God will do and what God has already done for them. And this is the tension of verse 7. God has promised in Micah's prophecy a world where God's people will live safely under his protection in fullness of joy. But God has also promised that he will execute justice on Israel for their continual rebellion. What is going to give? We see this pattern throughout the whole Old Testament. The people cry out. God sends a deliverer. The deliverer rescues them. They praise him for what feels like five minutes. They go right back to what they were doing. Over and over and over again, this pattern never stops. Where does it end? How can God love them in a way that also satisfies his justice? Where do love and justice meet? And this dilemma for Micah is the same for you and me. How can we look to God on his throne without fear? How can we trust that he hears our prayers if all we bring to the table is our sin? What gives any of us the right to ground our hope in the midst of suffering that God is for us and not against us? When we can, or when we can all think of times when our waiting was impatient, where we doubted his goodness or his power. Well, Micah back in chapter 5 has already told us that this answer has something to do with a king that will be born in Bethlehem. Micah has also told us that this answer will involve a faithful shepherd who will gather his sheep together and watch over them as they dwell in safety. Praise God, guys. We have the full picture now. And the full picture is that these two people are one and the same. The God of our salvation, this shepherd king who will rule his people in righteousness, this person where justice and love meet, this person whereby you can have confidence that God is for you and he reigns on his throne and that God hears you and desires to move in your suffering is none other than Jesus. Jesus fulfills the tensions in the book of Micah. Jesus is God's love for us on full display. One of the most often quoted verses in the Bible, John 3.16, what is it? For God so what? Love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus also satisfies the just demands of God by taking our sin for us. Romans 3, one of the clearest demonstrations of the gospel in all the Bible. I, I, I recommend it to you. I'm going to read it in full. Here we go. Verses 21 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And listen to this last part. It was to show God's righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Justice has been satisfied for you. But it's more than that. Jesus is also fully God, the one who promises that he will redeem his people to himself. But he's also fully man. He was on this side of the equation as well. He was that faithful firstborn son that Israel never was. Jesus is the God of our salvation because he has lived the perfect life we never lived. He has taken the full penalty of our sin all the way to death on the cross rose from the grave in victory over sin and death, and now offers himself to you. If you would turn from your sin, from trying to find hope in your suffering and all other things, and believe in him today. Through faith in Jesus, you are loved, and justice 
has already been done. If you believe in Jesus today, you are no longer face the eternal punishment that God requires of those who do not believe, but you have all the promises of God reserved for you. Your circumstances now no longer dictate or even can speak to how much God loves you. You know who dictates that? Jesus does. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Lord doesn't tell us whether or not we will receive what we desperately want in this life. The Lord doesn't tell us how long we are going to wait. But he does tell us that in the waiting, he will be enough for us. We come to a greater understanding of how to hold the tension of the trials of this life and God's promises together as we see with greater clarity how the Lord is using it for our good as we grow in hope that one day this God of our salvation, Jesus Christ, our shepherd king, will redeem all of it. Are you a missionary waiting for the hard soil of your unreached people group to bear fruit? Jesus is your mighty king, and the confidence you have in his promise to bring this nation you serve to him will one day give way to Revelation 5, where you will see clearly how you were used by him to bring his promise of every nation to his feet. Are you waiting for stability as a refugee, feeling out of place and without a home? Jesus is your resting place. Your daily fight for faith and the hope that Christ is enough will one day give way. For one day Jesus will come and again the earth will be redeemed. And you will have a sense of homeland and belonging in ways even now your country could never provide you. You will truly have rest in the presence of your faithful shepherd. Are you still enduring patiently but with great pain from the consequences of decisions you've made and repented of long ago? Jesus is your forgiveness, and in him you are loved by your heavenly Father. In what seems like a daily battle to cling to Christ when the world tells you that the Lord is still taking out his vengeance on you, will one day give way as the nearness of his presence to you now in your suffering will then be him physically near to you. You will see then in full what he pronounces over you right now. You are not damaged goods. You are the apple of his eye. Are you waiting for relief from sin? your tendencies of anxiety, doubt, anger, or lust. Jesus is your righteousness. Your daily fight to put sin to death will one day give way to the death of sin. For when he comes, 1 John 3, 2, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And at his second coming, for those who are waiting now with bodies that are failing you, you will have a renewed body, and you will use it perfectly to reflect God's glory and indescribable joy in the presence of Jesus, your great physician. I ask again the same question from the beginning. It's a simple message today. What do you do when suffering comes? Please remember, suffering does not have the last word. Jesus reigns over this world, over all that is in it, over all your suffering, and he loves you. Please remember, suffering does not hinder you from your Heavenly Father. Jesus is the guarantee that your Heavenly Father hears you and that He is working in your suffering. Please remember that this suffering one day will end. Jesus is coming again to make this right. Jesus is the prize we are waiting for. That's the real prosperity gospel. That's the truth. 
that Jesus is the prize that we've all been waiting for. He is what everything that's good in this life is pointing to, and you will have him. You have him already right now in full, but now you will experience that in its fullness one day. Rest in what is coming. Let's join with the spirit of Micah and look to Jesus from the watchtower, looking on the horizon for him coming in confidence. For when the world around you is crumbling, Jesus is still the God of your salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your love for us is not based on how faithful we have been in our waiting. I'm sure a lot of us can look back or even things going on right now where we have doubted your control, your love for us, or even if you are who you say you are. But Lord, there is more grace in you than sin in us. Thank you that every second of our wandering while we suffered was paid for on the cross. Lord, give us the grace to come to you in repentance for ways we have not waited for like we should. Give us rest in knowing that in Jesus we have rock-solid hope. Built not on the shifting sands of our circumstances or how obedient we think we've been lately, but built on your Son dying for us, rising for us, and is one day coming again for us. Thank you that you are the God of our salvation and that one day we will see with perfect vision how you were worth all the waiting in the world. Give us greater confidence that you are near, that you are reigning, and that one day you will make all things new. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.